Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to today's episode of the Health Tree Podcast for Multiple Myeloma, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, GSK, for their support of this program. Now, before our show this morning, I'd like to let you know that we will be launching what we call HealthTree 2.0 on October 23rd. In the last decade, we've developed over 14 tools and programs to support you in three ways. First, we've built a pillar of lifetime personalized support and education programs. This includes this podcast, HealthTree University, our news website, our webinars, roundtables, patient navigators, and others. And secondly, we've created a pillar of meaningful patient-to-patient connections through our coach program, our social media app called HealthTree Connect, our, our Moves app, and our upcoming regional chapters that will be expanding. And you'll see that happening later in this year. And thirdly, we created a powerful patient data portal called HealthTree Cure Hub. This tool doesn't exist for any other disease today, and it helps you navigate your myeloma um, while helping advance research for investigators using real-world evidence. And we built all this technology to make that possible, and we called all of that HealthTree 1.0. And in our next decade, HealthTree 2.0 will be an expansion of our efforts to help advance a cure in multiple myeloma with greater outreach and with HealthTree regional branches and a focus on more research and partnership with myeloma investigators. And as patients, there is so much more that we can do to help these investigators advance their research. So our announcement is live on our website, and we encourage you to register for that and create a watch party. Now on to our show. Um, Stem cell transplant is considered a core treatment for multiple myeloma. And as the original immunotherapy, we'd like to learn today more about how it's advanced new therapies that are making it easier, and how it should be used with a growing number of immunotherapies in the myeloma clinic. Dr. John DiPrecio joins us as an expert in both cellular therapies and immunotherapies. Dr. DiPrecio, welcome to the program. Hi there. Nice to hear you and see you um, virtually. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining. Let me give give a quick introduction for you before we get started. Dr. DiPrecio is director in the the section of cellular therapy, division of oncology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. He's also currently the associate director of the Bursky Center for the Human Immunology and Immunotherapy Programs and director of the Center for Gene and Cellular Therapy in the division of oncology. He was previously chief of oncology at Washington University. Dr. DiPrecio is a reviewer on over 30 major hematology and immunology publications as an, and as an education advisory board member for many cancer centers, including the University of Miami, Levine Cancer Institute, University of Michigan, University of Chicago, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Dana-Farber, Weill Cornell, and many, many others. He serves as an external advisor to sport grants at Dana-Farber and Memorial Sloan Kettering, and his awards include the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society Legacy Award, Giants of Cancer Care Award for Leukemia Research, the American Collect, um, uh, Physicians Harriet P. Dustin Award for Science Related to Medicine. He's a former Teacher of the Year, AACR co-chair, and um, has received many lecture awards and teaching awards. And your your CV is so impressive, it's incredible. As you can tell, you, you're just so highly esteemed by your blood cancer colleagues and um, are truly um, myeloma, leukemia, and immunology global experts. So we are so privileged to have you on the show today. Well, thanks very much. Very kind introduction. 
I don't deserve it. Well, no, you do. (laughs) Looking at your CV is incredible, just truly incredible. So maybe we want to start with some basics. Um, Stem cell transplant is high, you know, has been highly used in myeloma for a number of decades, but maybe you want to go backwards a little bit and explain how stem cell transplant was really the original immunotherapy. Yeah, so um, a stem cell transplant was really uh, first uh, developed uh, in the context of transplantation for, believe it or not, uh, both malignant and non-malignant diseases, aplastic anemia and acute leukemia. And really the early transplants were performed um, by E. Donald Thomas and uh, in which, um, and by the way, there's a beautiful recent book published by um, Fred Applebaum, um, and the book is called Living Medicine. Um, just came out a few months ago. It's really, um, I encourage everybody to read it because it does provide you with a really amazing context of how transplant began. And those were certain, those were really the dark, the dark ages. In the, in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, when transplantation was performed mostly from donors into recipients to get rid of leukemia or to um, fix uh, this bone marrow failure state called aplastic anemia. And I think the, 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 the efforts early on were, uh, were very, very challenging with almost, uh, I think, 95% of the first 20 or 30 patients not surviving the uh, treatment. And so obviously over the years, um, the uh, approach to transplantation has taken two big directions. One is that the the treatment for um, uh, malignant diseases and bone marrow failure states from donors, the so-called allogeneic transplant, is associated with um, uh, a number of unique risks but also some really powerful benefits, and that's what you were talking about. That's the immunotherapy of the infused cells, specifically the T cells, which recognize the host as non-self. And so those T cells can actually uh, attack uh, the patient's leukemia or uh, whatever malignancy the patient has, and also can attack the host um, or the recipient's immune system to allow the donor cells to engraft and take over. And so the, the, the complications really surround this issue of graft-versus-host disease in which the T cells, these immune cells of the donor, can attack not only the malignancy of the host, which is a very powerful effect, but also can unfortunately somehow sometimes have significant off-leukemia but um, on-target effects on normal tissues resulting in things like rash, diarrhea, um, and liver problems, et cetera, which can be life, um, which can be uh, life-threatening. And so um, the year, over the past uh, five or six decades, we've figured out how to do this much more safely, even for older patients. And now we can transplant patients um, in their 60s and 70s with um, transplants from donors and we can expect that a large number of those patients will get through the transplant safely with limited complications. And what we're really left with now is still relapse of the disease, even though a transplant is done, because these diseases are pretty tough. So that's come an enormous way, and now we have ways of really limiting uh, both acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease using various approaches, some of which we've been involved in the development of and some of which have been developed by others in the field. The other direction is autologous transplant, which relates to myeloma mostly. And it was observed early on that that high doses of an alkylating agent called melphalan could be associated with um, prolonged uh, remissions in patients with multiple myeloma. In fact, oral melphalan was used as a treatment for multiple myeloma at very low doses. And some of these patients did very well, and so the thought was could we advance the dose to very high doses and really uh, completely extinguish the, uh, the myeloma and hopefully have just normal stem cells recover. And so that's the principle of autologous transplant for multiple myeloma. And that is that high doses of this drug called melphalan, since these myeloma cells are inherently sensitive to melphalan, 
uh, can be used to eliminate the myeloma and allow the normal cells to survive uh, and grow back so that when they grow back, there's normal blood cells that are being made, but there's no myeloma. And so this has become a staple or a standard of care for the treatment of patients with multiple myeloma. And still, to this day, even though we have many new drugs for multiple myeloma, it still represents a, a, a standard of care approach to the, to the treatment of patients with multiple myeloma, especially those that have had a nice response to what's called induction therapy, which today represents a combination of things like dexamethasone, image like lenalidomide or uh, pomalidomide um, um, uh, uh, and other agents uh, such as daratumumab and um, et cetera. So um, this, this autologous transplant, what you do is you collect the stem cells from a patient with myeloma and then um, freeze them and then give the patient high doses of melphalam so that all the cells are eliminated, including the normal stem cells and the myeloma cells, and the, the trick is that you infuse uh, the frozen stem cells that have been frozen in advance of the high doses of melphalan, because if you didn't do that, there would be no blood count recovery. And those stem cells uh, magically go into the blood and find their way back to the bone marrow and home to an area called the, the hematopoietic niche, which is in the bone marrow, and they settle there and they see everything they need to start dividing and making new blood cells. And so over a period of just 10 days to two weeks, new blood cells are made, patients recover, and they can leave the hospital with, um, with recovery of their blood counts and hopefully uh, com uh, near complete or complete elimination of their myeloma. Um, and that's sort of the, the, the history of autologous and allogeneic stem cell transplantation. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I'm so happy you mentioned the book Living Medicine. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we are having a launch event for our HealthTree 2.0, kind of our next decade. And Fred Applebaum is coming to speak as a keynote speaker at our launch. So, And we will be giving, um, you know, sharing copies of his book at the event. So I, I am almost finished reading it. It is a fascinating read of the history of stem cell transplant. And I think had you looked at um, that idea and that concept, you know, five decades ago, you would have just, and I know people said this probably to him, like, you're crazy. How is that? It's like science fiction. How does that even seem possible? Right. Well, and I think now that, here we are. It, yeah, I think it, um, uh, you know, with all due respect to even the people that came before um, uh, E. Donald Thomas and um, those early pioneers, were um, a number of um, uh, stem cell biologists that had been doing transplants in small animals in mice. So there mm. was evidence from those studies that transplants could be done, and they could be done across um, um, HL, uh, MHC barriers or these histocompatibility barriers. So there was some evidence, at least from small animal studies, that this was actually possible. And the, the studies that really launched it into the, into the human setting were a series of um, experiments done uh, primarily in dogs. And that's, that's where wow. E. Donald Thomas did his early work and for, what, for which he received the, uh, the Nobel Prize uh, in, uh, uh, many years ago. But this is, uh, this, this, there always is, you know, I think the most important thing is there always is somebody that's doing something before you do it, almost always. And sometimes those yeah, guys get a little so. bit forgotten. Uh, and those mm -hmm. early pioneers were mouse transplant people. Um, I still do a lot mm -hmm. of mouse transplants, and uh, they provide incredible insights into how to, um, um, and many of the, the approaches that we've taken uh, with patients and to minimize the, the toxicity of transplant were first worked out in mice and then uh, now um, less often in large animals because it's such an expensive undertaking. But obviously large animals uh, were used in the early days, specifically dogs and occasional primate studies. But, um, but I, I think there was, um, you know, uh, with all due respect to all the people that came before uh, Don Thomas, 
there was a little bit of evidence that this could be done and could be done safely. Um, and so his early studies in the dog uh, were, were on the shoulders of a number of uh, folks doing these mouse experiments. Well, it's incredible. And I think, I think that happens very frequently when people are standing on the shoulders of people who came before who were doing you know, basic research and then moving it to the translational type of research. It's really incredible. And I think it's just it's so impressive. These people are so brilliant, so including people like you. So it's amazing. Um, let's talk a little bit about stem cell transplant. And you talked about how it's being used in multiple myeloma. Patients typically get some kind of induction therapy like daratumumab, you know, like you mentioned, Revlimid, Velcade, dexamethasone. In a quad therapy or maybe a triplet, just um, Revlimid, Velcade, Dex, or even Kyprolis or something like that. And then the stem cell transplant's given, and you gave a very nice overview of the, re of the recovery, how the recovery works, because you get your stem cells back. And then a lot of my little, um, physicians will give some kind of consolidation or maintenance therapy. Can you talk a little bit about the um, how the side effect management has become pretty well known and and very, it, you know, facilities don't seem to have a, any kind of problem with that anymore? Yeah, so um, the, the, uh, the, the transplantation procedure we use in myeloma patients is called autologous transplant. So we use one's own stem cells. And so those stem cells engraft um, after the patient has received high doses of melphalan. The melphalan goes away, gets excreted, and so there's no drug left, and then the cells are infused. They're thawed at the bedside and then infused into the patient. And as I say, they magically find their way to the bone marrow. And uh, from every step along the way, we, we have spent years and decades um, honing this down. So um, the process of collecting the stem cells um, used to be from bone marrow harvest. Now we can actually give drugs that will actually um, redirect the stem cells that are in the bone marrow to move out into the peripheral blood uh, in large numbers. And then those stem cells can be collected and frozen. And the freezing process had to be worked out over a long period of time because when you freeze and thaw cells, um, and, you know, there, there's water in cells. And so the, the water freezes. And uh, for any of you who know, if you pour water into a glass and you uh, put a glass in the freezer, the water will expand when it freezes and the glass will break. And so the same thing happens in a cell. So you just can't simply collect a cell and freeze it, you need to do something to uh, make sure when, when, it, uh, when you cool it down, the inside doesn't form ice crystals. And so there are uh, chemicals that we uh, freeze the cells in so that there's no expansion of the intracellular fluid so the cells don't burst open. Mm -hmm. um, and that's called DMSO. And then that is, uh, that is essentially um, excreted in the patient's lungs when we infuse these cells. Um, and then the cells, um, how they get to the bone marrow has been, you know, uh, an effort by, in particular, my lab for 20 years, um, uh, almost 20 years. And so I've been very interested in uh, what are all the signals involved and how a stem cell gets into the bone marrow what, and what's, what tethers or a little, um, uh, you know, um, uh, what molecules are actually involved with the attachment of the stem cell to the bone marrow niche and, and how you actually break those tethers to re release them into the peripheral blood so they can be collected for uh, freezing and then infusion for after stem cell transplantation. And then um, the management of patients uh, after infusion, you know, the blood counts will go down and they'll go to zero. And so the, the supportive care for patients has undergone a revolution with modern antibiotics, modern blood product um, infusions to protect patients against infections and bleeding. Uh, a number of drugs are used and are being tested even today to reduce the systemic toxicities of the high-dose chemotherapy because that can injure tissues in and of itself, like the GI tract and the liver. So we're looking at new things to try to block that toxicity. 
Um, and then also the use of um, growth factors after transplant that might enhance uh, recovery of at least the neutrophil count more quickly. Um, and so that's been studied for many years, and now it's pretty much standard of care. And then uh, we know what happens when you engraft and you're not sick, you, you know, the, the blood counts usually are stable, and the engraftment uh, includes all of the important blood uh, forming cells like the white cells that fight infections and the red cells that carry oxygen to the tissues and the platelets which are responsible for uh, blood clotting. And so all of those come back in a, in a relatively short period of time and usually quite consistently in those patients that get sufficient numbers of stem cells that were collected before the infusion. So this is all now, uh, it was a completely unknown uh, 30, 40 years ago. Now it's a science and a standard of care, which most every transplant program follows in some general way. And we're all trying to tweak the system every day uh, to try to get more stem cells or better stem cells by using various basic science approaches that we work out, again, through the mouse and then sometimes through large animal models. And then we're also trying to freeze them better so that they are preserved better. And the third thing is we're trying to get them to go to the bone marrow quicker and expand faster and also uh, pro, uh, promote uh, engraftment of all of the lineages more, consistent, more consistently and more rapidly so the patients don't um, uh, have any kind of toxicity issues. And then eventually we'll figure this out to the point where uh, this can be done you know, realistically can be done uh, not only in the outpatient setting, which it can be done now, but in the outpatient setting where there are very few um, uh, requirements like for transfusions or antibiotics. We're starting to figure out how to really um, uh, improve the uh, hematopoietic recovery such that those kinds of supportive measure, measures may not be that necessary in the future. So it will truly be a, a not only an outpatient procedure, but a relatively easy outpatient procedure. Oh, wonderful. Well, as someone who experienced or went through tandem transplants, I appreciate all the work that you're doing to dial this in and as a community to do that. It's incredible. Um, I want to ask you about the stem cell collection process because I know you've been leading a clinical trial um, focusing on the stem cell collection process, and you mentioned that as one of the steps. So maybe first help, under, help us understand how many patients, how long does it typically take to collect, and do patients ever struggle with stem cell collection in that part of the process? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And so, um, you know, for... Um, before we could actually, it's so-called, um, in quotations, mobilize stem cells from the bone marrow into the peripheral blood. As I mentioned, we used to collect, uh, we used to bring people to the operating room. In fact, it's still done today with normal donors to bring people to the operating room and collect their bone marrow and freeze their bone marrow away, and those are the source of stem cells. It's usually relatively inefficient for autologous transplants, and so we've found that mobilizing these cells into the peripheral blood, we collect many more stem cells, and they're very functional, and they are responsible for engraftment even faster than bone marrow stem cells are. So this has become the standard of care for autologous transplantation in multiple, multiple myeloma. Um, and so the process actually requires um, two um, uh, uh, steps. Number one, you need to give uh, some drug or drugs to promote this mobilization process. And the second is you need to uh, collect these stem cells using a process called phoresis. So let me just mention the first step. So the, the standard of care for many years has been to give um, GCSF or granulocyte colony stimulating factor, which is uh, something else that I was working on early in my career, uh, cloning this gene and, um, and studying this gene and, and another a lied gene called granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor. And both of these actually uh, induce the peripheralization or mobilization of stem cells into the peripheral blood. And we now understand some of the mechanisms. It's very quite, it's quite interesting actually that, that the, one of the tethers that holds the stem cells into the bone marrow 
gets down-regulated by GCSF, so that tether starts to disappear. And so the stem cells kind of float out of the bone marrow into the peripheral blood. That's the mechanism of how GCSF mobilizes. But that process takes four to six days, and so you have to get shots every day. During that time, also, that the stem cell numbers are expanding because GCSF induces a, a horizontal expansion of the stem cell numbers and also promotes this peripheralization of stem cells out of the bone marrow into the peripheral blood by down-regulating this little tether that's actually expressed in the bone marrow itself. And therefore, without that tether, the cells are not attached anymore to the bone marrow and float away. Uh, and then they're collected by phoresis. So the, the second big event that's occurred is that um, in 2009, we, we actually um, well, made uh, a, a major effort in the laboratory um, along with colleagues at a small biotech company in Vancouver called Anermed and developed a small molecule uh, mobilization agent called Plerixifor. And instead of taking a week uh, to mobilize stem cells into the peripheral blood, this does it in a matter of hours. It blocks that tether instead of mm. downregulating it. So while GCSF takes a, a week to downregulate this tether, this small molecule, Plerixifor, blocks it in minutes. And so the stem cells just immediately float into the peripheral blood. So it's a rapid mobilizing agent, but it's not as potent as GCSF. And so there have been two major trials looking at the combination of GCSF plus either Plerixifor or another um, uh, inhibitor uh, of the same class, this is called a CXC, uh, CXCR4 inhibitor called Metixafortide, which was just recently published by our group a month or so ago. And this drug um, is also like Plerixafor, a CXCR4 inhibitor. And both of these studies, the one in 2009 and the one in 2023, showed the same general um, uh, result, and that is that when you combine uh, Plerixafor with GCSF or this new drug, Metixafortide, with GCSF, you get synergistic or robust additive mobilization of stem cells into the peripheral blood. And compared to GCSF alone, there was a dramatic difference um, in the ability to collect sufficient stem cells for transplant. So now the standard of care for patients with myeloma, uh, for the most part, is to get either um, GCSF plus Plerixifor, and potentially in the future will be to get GCSF uh, plus metixafortide to um, harvest the most stem cells. And the reason you want to harvest the most stem cells is that some patients require more than one transplant, like you received, tandem transplant mm -hmm. uh, for myeloma. And so you need to collect, in a sense, enough for two transplants, not just one transplant. And the second is the more stem cells you have, uh, for each transplant, the better, faster, and more consistent the engraftment and the lower toxicity and the increased safety of each transplant. So the more, the better. And so the combination of a CXCR4 inhibitor, which is a small molecule, rapid mobilizing agent with GCSF, which is a biologic, which takes the, uh, five to seven days to work, uh, is synergistic in this is the standard of care for mobilization uh, in the future. Now, what's going to happen in the future for mobilization? Well, I don't know, but, you know, we're working on a, a new angle, and, uh, you know, we, we haven't published this yet, but um, we're working on a, another rapid mobilizing agent that targets a completely different pathway so that instead of giving GCSF for a week and then um, – Fluorixafor or metixafortide, uh, we uh, have, uh, at least in mouse models and in primate models, shown that if you give um, metixafortide or fluorixafor plus our, uh, our, our rapid mobilizing agent, you get about the same mobilization as you do with GCSF and, and uh, CXCR4 inhibitors, but you get it in hours instead of a week. So um, oh, wow. this, will, this will be, you know, instead of having to go every day to the clinic to get your shots for a week, it's conceivable that in the future we'll be able to do this the same day. You'll come to the clinic, you'll get both shots, you'll get collected, and you'll be done. 
Wow, that's impressive. So I remember that process. <laughs> yeah, the collection process. The second part of this is the collection process, which is done uh, by a, a process called apheresis, and it's a very nifty process where the blood cells leave uh, one port of a catheter usually and go into a machine where they're centrifuged, and the density uh, of the cells um, uh, results in the stem cells floating at the top of the bowl and all the other cells going to the bottom, the red cells and the granulocytes, and those cells are returned to the patient. And the stem cells which float on the top are siphoned off, and they're collected continuously uh, while the patients are undergoing this procedure. And usually uh, the procedure consists of three to four blood volumes, so between 16 and 20 liters of blood volume, which is four times what you have in your body. But what happens is the one blood volume goes out, and almost all of it goes back to you, except the stem cells which are taken out. And that process continues until you've had about four blood volumes um, for yeast. And those cells are then uh, uh, measured for stem cell numbers by what's called flow cytometry. And then they're frozen mm -hmm. in DMSO, like I mentioned earlier, and they're ready for infusion after the patient receives uh, the high-dose melphalan chemotherapy. And that's... Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for the explanation. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I know that for the metixafortide, fortide. Okay, I'm saying this wrong, but um, I think there was just an FDA approval, right? Effexta was just FDA approved for multiple myeloma. Yeah, it just got approved. I think a week ago or so. So it's, it's, I think that's exciting. So you know, to, you know, I think it's. it's it's hard for maybe your audience to understand how hard it is to get drugs approved by the FDA and how much effort and time it takes a team, a village of people, a big pharmaceutical effort, um, oftentimes uh, investors that put their life uh, savings, you know, in these uh, both small and big companies to make something happen. And then, of course, uh, good basic science that gets you to that Spot. And then a good clinical investigators that can that can execute clinical trials which show the benefit of the reagent that you're trying to develop. And so that process with metixafortide literally took probably almost 10 years uh, from the beginnings. Uh, so it wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. It took, a, as I said, a village to do this. And uh, we were fortunate to be involved in a lot of the early basic science and um, in the design and execution of the clinical trial. And fortunately, the clinical trial was very positive. And so um, uh, the difference in uh, the uh, number of patients that were able to uh, collect sufficient numbers of stem cells for a transplant at the end of just GCSF alone was around 16% and the, um, uh, after the first apheresis, and it was almost 90% if you got the two drugs together, GCSF and metixafortide. So you can see wow. it represents a big difference. And so that's basically, uh, and the fact that it was relatively well tolerated, and that's why it was approved by the FDA. That's wonderful. And why do patients struggle with collection at some point? Is it because they've received prior therapies? that have kind of yeah. worn that down, or yeah. what's, yeah, what's the very, core cause? Yeah, very good, very good question. So there's three things, I think. Uh, there are, um, there's one important thing is age and sex-related issues. So as you get older and older, uh, especially if you're a female when you get older and older, the, uh, the ability to collect stem cells drops slightly, okay, so that that has age mm -hmm. has an impact. Um, and then um, previous therapies. Uh, for your myeloma or any other cancer you may have had before you develop myeloma can really, or radiation or anything like that, can, can diminish your bone marrow reserves. And so uh, those patients are um, particularly difficult to mobilize. So just the number of stem cells that are living in those patients, even though their blood counts may be normal, uh, their reserves mm -hmm. are low, and you don't know that until you try to mobilize them, and you, it, it's very difficult. And then the third is unknowns. So there are a number of people, even normal uh, donors, young allo donors, uh, not many, fortunately, but some, that are very poor mobilizers. And uh, so the question is why? And we, um, we and a few other groups have been looking at that. Do they have 
some underlying genetic abnormality in their stem cells? Is it inherited? Um, is it inherited, meaning is it a germline inherited trait um, in which perhaps some of the tethers in the bone marrow are uh, configured in a different way uh, and hold those stem cells in there or don't support uh, sufficient numbers of stem cells? So the, those are the three things, previous therapy, um, you know, age and sex, um, and the unknown. And so, um, you know, that's why these new agents to mobilize stem cells are particularly important because this allows even poor mobilizers to mobilize sufficient numbers of stem cells to get a transplant, and that's important. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the 10 years that it took to get this particular um, to market, and it seems like the average might be about 17 years. To, to I've read that somewhere before, that it takes about 17 years to get something to market from the beginning to the end when it's FDA approved. Are, it's just such a long haul. Are, once it is approved, how do you get the word out to other to transplanters, essentially? Well, I mean, I think the, the key that we the, – the, the, primary focus that we've always taken when we've been we've been involved in the development and FDA approval of three different drugs, which is pretty exciting. And in each case, I think the best way to do it, I think, is to let um, the, do the correct uh, studies um, and publish the studies in good journals so that the scientific community can read them and assess them. And then there we have scientific meetings where the data is presented to all of our colleagues who are actually taking care of these patients. And then they can see um, uh, what the benefit of uh, these drugs are. And then the drugs, if they're good and they're really worthwhile, they sell themselves, meaning that uh, uh, physicians will uh, look at them and say, you know, this, this does provide us clear-cut benefit for these patients. And then, uh, then that, that's why I'll use it. And and every once in a while, you know, the, there are drugs that look good, but when it's, um, you know, when it's used by the general public after FDA approval, um, sometimes there are unexpected long-term or short-term toxicities, which then kind of uh, result in some problems and sometimes even withdrawal of drugs from the market, um, which is rare. But also uh, the level of enthusiasm sometimes can either increase substantially or decrease a little bit based on real-world experience with the drugs. And so after it's FDA approved, uh, I think if you did a good job and you, you wrote, uh, you, you did the right study and the, and the study was positive and you published it in a good journal and you presented it at scientific meetings in a fair way, these drugs generally sell themselves, and there's one impediment that limits their access to the general population, and that is their cost. Uh, and mm -hmm. so in today's world, that's an important uh, uh, fundamental feature and uh, of all drugs being used, not being FDA approved so much, but being used, because, you know, there are options uh, that hospitals have and even outpatient clinics that are often owned by hospitals have, and they want to provide care not only in the best way, but also, if possible, um, all else being equal in a cost-efficient way. So they have to look at the cost of new drugs, and sometimes these their competitors come off um, patent and generics are made and they're slightly cheaper. And so uh, physicians and formulary committees at hospitals look at the cost of new drugs and the relative additional benefit and the relative increased cost and make decisions about how they would be utilized. Uh, but obviously you can, um, if the drugs are life-saving and monumental, for instance, CAR T-cell therapies, they're phenomenally expensive, but because they have such an amazing impact on disease and the quality of life of patients, we've been able to so far accept the fact that they're very costly and we've been uh, so far able to um, bring them into the mainstream of patient care. Mm, fascinating. And you mentioned that um, that some some of these drugs can have side effects, obviously. every I think every drug does have some kind of toxicity to it. 
does this new one come with any notable side effects? Or I know you mentioned that you were working on um, different combinations also that were different. Um, yeah. Are you seeing anything in your studies that are identifying so any the, the, particular? Yeah, the paper. Yeah, the paper that we published it does go into all the in in, in uh, the mm-hmm. detail of all the uh, the toxicities and they're called adverse events that occur during this study. Severe adverse events, and so that's all in the in the publication, but also in the um, the um, uh, FDA approval of the drug, um, uh, the label, so-called, that as mandated by the FDA, has to list all of those um, toxicities. And so, in our hands, you know, it was very well tolerated. The major um, uh, toxicity was minor um, skin-related. Um, erythema, which is redness, and sometimes a little swelling around the injection site, but that mm-hmm. was the major issue. Um, there were no really, uh, every once in a while uh, a person would have a little bit of itching, and then when we used pre-medications, that was gone away, and so the systemic toxicities were very um, limited and well-tolerated, and the only thing that was sort of consistently seen was a little bit of um, swelling and, um, and erythema where the injection site is uh, given, the injections are given. Okay, well, that makes sense. And it's, I mean, if you're shorting it down from a week down to a day, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, can I ask you a question about this? Because you are working on both uh, cellular therapies or transplant and immunotherapies, which are also under that brand, I guess, or that bucket. Yeah. Um, should all patients collect, I'm, I'm hearing some CAR-T providers say sometimes we're using banked stem cells for post-CAR-T recovery. So my question is, should all patients, whether they're headed to transplant or not, collect and store their stem cells? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, we've, I don't know how many times we've talked about this. this is, again, there are issues <laughs> relating to um, cost. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I, you know, the, the, the issue with uh, prolonged pancytopenia after uh, CAR T cell infusions for myeloma is quite a bit lower than for acute lymphoblastic leukemia and for mm-hmm. diffuse large cell lymphoma. But it's still a, mm-hmm. still an issue. And obviously, mm-hmm. when it happens, it's just terrible because, you have someone that has no blood counts, and uh, they're, they're obviously at great risk to have something bad happen. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what the answer is. Obviously, if it could be done cost-effectively for everybody, um, it might not be a bad idea, uh, to tell you the truth. I, I think one of the worries is that when you collect someone's stem cells, you might be collecting uh, a few myeloma cells at the same time. But I think that's an issue which has pretty much been debunked for the most part. And so I think the issue is, um, should that be sort of a standard of care? And obviously, it would be very hard to do a clinical trial showing the benefit of that approach because um, the incidence of this, especially in myeloma CAR T's, is so low that you'd have to do lots and lots of patients to show a benefit. And so who's going to pay for the study? The insurance, right. companies, uh, the insurance companies may not want to pay for that extra, you know, cost of uh, mobilization. You know, the cost of mobilization and collect- collection is quite substantial. And so it adds another, you know, thirty to $50,000 on top of the cost of the CAR T-cell therapy and um, and so the, there are lots of issues there, especially if the insurance company's not paying for it. Who's going to eat the cost? The patient's not going to pay for it. The hospitals are not going to pay for it. The physicians are not going to pay for it. So the, ultimately, the insurance companies will have to agree to pay for it. And they may not pay for it because there's no FDA approval or and that's not part of the label for CAR-T. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Right. So, yeah. So you'd have to kind of position it as someone's maybe headed to transplant and they're going to collect, and if they get to use it later, great. But maybe yeah, so not. What we I do, don't know. What we, what we do and what some other places do, for those patients that come to CAR T cell collection, whether they have myeloma or diffuse large cell lymphoma, and they have low blood counts to start with, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, or they have bulky disease, a lot of disease. So the patients that have a lot of disease and low blood counts to start with, 
when you collect their T cells. Those are the people that are at the greatest risk of having prolonged pancytopenia. And if you say, okay, I'm just going to try to get approval, a one-off approval for this patient, probably 50% of the time the insurance companies will agree to it. But, um, mm. but it may not be cost-effective or reasonable to do that in everybody. Yeah, well, that makes sense. If, you're, if you can pre-identify who might be struggling, that might make more sense. Another question that I get a lot asked by myeloma patients is, is stem cell collection and T-cell collection possible at the same time? Um, absolutely, um, but we haven't done this yet. Um, but mm-hmm. absolutely, there should be no problem with doing both at the same time. And that's also, you know, for that to be, you know, because the label uh, for each of the CAR T-cell products, right, the label is that you get a, uh, a just an unmobilized uh, apheresis without GCSF. That's mm-hmm. how the drugs were approved. And so if you do something different, you're not... Number one, uh, the insurance companies may deny after the fact. They may they may find that you use mm-hmm. GCSF to mobilize, uh, and 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 also the cost. There's going to be additional costs, and someone's going to want to know who's paying for it. But if you're asking me, um, that one of the safest and easiest ways to proceed would be uh, to do exactly what you're saying, and that is to um, um, to um, uh, to um, to collect both uh, T cells and stem cells at the same time. With GCSF, it's going to be a little bit tricky, right? Because you have to give GCSF for a whole week, so you'd have mm-hmm. to do the process at two different times. But you can imagine if you had these rapid mobilizing agents that somebody could come in the morning and get a collection of T cells for their CAR T cell, and then get you know, right after the collection, two hours later, get um, their doses of metixafortide and another rapid mobilizing agent, and two hours later get their stem cells collected and banked. So they could all get it done essentially the same day while they were hooked up to the phresis machine. But, you know, again, uh, that's not how these drugs, these CAR-Ts were approved, and so the FDA right. will say, show us that that results in equivalent outcomes. And I don't know if anybody has the stomach uh, to do this because that's a big clinical trial um, and um, who's going to pay for it? That's the issue. Right. And the currently approved FDA FDA CAR-T therapies are not approved to use frozen T-cells potentially uh, either, right? So you'd have to do some kind of storage of those. That's that's right. Yeah, they're all... Mm -hmm. They're all evolved from fresh products being manipulated. And, again, um, you know, when you actually freeze, thaw, and then genetically manipulate a T cell, you have to prove that those T cells work the same way. So, again, I'm not sure if anyone would want to go back and try to prove that because the cost would be enormous. Um, and right. Yeah. What's the what's the impact of GCSF on T cells? I'm just curious. Yeah. So, um, well, GCSF does um, skew the T cell population. So it's a very good question, and people have looked at um, the phenotype you know, by staining the surface of these cells, and there are some subtle changes that uh, GCSF and also this longer acting pegylated GCSF has on uh, T cells. And there's been some really quite poor evidence in the, in the aloe transplant setting that, uh, that GCSF may, um, may alter the T cell uh, function that may result in slight increase in the number of um, patients that develop chronic graft-versus-host disease, although most Experts like myself really feel that that's most likely due to the, just the greater number of T cells you get when you mobilize with GCSF in the products compared to a bone marrow harvest or something like that. So there are some subtle differences, and then also you know you might ask, well, what is what does metixafortide or plerixafor do to T cells? And they mm-hmm. also 
skew the T cell population. The, the, the key there is that even though we see these subtle differences in the phenotype of the T cells, it's been difficult to prove that they function differently. So that's been the, that's been the tough part. So the, the, the bottom line is there are differences, and both GCSF and polyrexaphor and methixaphortide induce some unique changes in the T cell populations. But proving that that results in any change in outcomes has been uh, either not tested or impossible to uh, determine. Hmm. That's fascinating. So you are also um, an expert both in transplant and in immunotherapy. And as, as these immunotherapies, CAR-T, bispecific antibodies, vaccines, come out and are being used in myeloma and other blood cancers, um, what are what are you thinking will happen in terms of sequencing with stem cell transplant? Will will the strategy be to do an upfront uh, upfront stem cell transplant, save your immunotherapies for second line, or use the immunotherapies first, save the transplant for second or third or fourth line if that doesn't work? Um, what are you thinking? Yeah, I'm, uh, you know I'm looking at what's happened in my in lymphoma. Um, and so in the lymphoma world, the number of patients getting autologous transplant now is dropped substantially. And that is because um, these CAR T-cell uh, therapies and other immunotherapies have been put in as second-line treatments. Hmm. And so I suspect that the same studies will be done uh, with, and are being done actually, with myeloma. And so there will be large randomized studies in patients to get induction uh, and then uh, and then standard autologous transplant and maintenance versus induction CAR T cell therapy and maintenance and, and and every combination of those things. Yes, I think those studies will be done and those will lead the way forward. But remember, the, the reimbursement for an autologous transplant by Medicare is around forty thousand dollars. That's obviously it costs mm -hmm. more than that. Um, because, um, but but that's the DRG reimbursement somewhere in the forty-five thousand dollar range, something like that. So very low. The cost of a CAR T is you know four hundred plus thousand dollars just for the reagent, and probably closer to six hundred thousand dollars for the treatment. So again, if uh, you know the you know we might show a slight benefit of giving CAR T cells after induction therapy, um, but. We have to be careful about breaking the bank here. If the if if you give if you give something that shows a, a little bit of a benefit as, as opposed to progression-free survival, is that um, is that the same as you know overall survival? For instance, if you do uh, uh, treatment, you know induction, and then auto transplant, and then maintenance, and then CAR T, mm -hmm. um, are you going to end up with a, a less surviving patients than if you do induction, CAR-T, maintenance, and then an autotransplant, something like that, or another tr another immunotherapy. So I, I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, cycling these treatments earlier and earlier, you have to show that there's not only an improvement in progression-free pre free survival, but also maybe even overall survival because there are so many other options for treatment and that the additional cost to society, you know, there's a lot of patients with multiple myeloma and there's a lot of people getting autologous transplants from multiple myeloma and if we convert all of those to CAR T cell treatments, um, you know, the, the difference in cost is uh, tenfold. Mm -hmm. So it's, right. it's suddenly you increase the cost of care by 1,000%. Yeah, it's just a question about T cell fitness, right? Are are you going to have better outcomes if you use it in earlier line of therapies because the T cells aren't as um, exhausted? Uh, and I don't know. that's an interesting um, it's a question. Good question. It's about a good question, but that's a good question. But I don't know the answer to that. And obviously, yeah. there are ways of using uh, off-the-shelf reagents that will become more and more of a potential possibility as we go forward. You know, CAR Ts and NK cell therapies that maybe um, an off-the-shelf reagent where that not that the issue of exhaustion is not such a big issue. Mm -hmm. And is there a difference in responses that you see genetically? I know precision medicine was kind of a, a huge um, thing a, a few years ago and everyone was trying to find 
targeted therapies for certain genetic features. It seems like immunotherapies are not considered like that. Um, patients seem to do well, even if they have some of those higher-risk features. But have you seen any differences genetically in, in high-risk versus standard-risk myeloma for stem cell transplant versus the immunotherapies? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't, I'm not convinced that there is yet, but I'm I, I'm suspicious that when because not enough patients have been tri tr treated uni uh, uniformly and followed long enough, um, and so I'm I'm going to stick my neck out here and say that there will be, uh, because we see that in every kind of immuno immunotherapy for the most part, um, because ultimately the inherent bio biologic aggressiveness of diseases. Uh, if you treat enough patients, will will show its ugly head, um, and mm -hmm. so and we see that in uh, in ALL, um, you know the uh, patients with um, uh, 411 translocations that have B cell ALL, uh, they respond to CAR T cell therapies, but they often relapse afterwards, um, and the same for uh, patients with particularly high risk genetics and diffuse large cell lymphoma, although you can cure some of them, uh, there is a trend towards worse outcomes in those people with worse genetics. In myeloma, there's just not enough patients uh, that have been treated yet, but I bet I'm just going to stick my neck out that there probably will be some inherent differences in those patients that have really high-risk um, mutations, including, of course, P53 mutations. Um, that um, get a CAR T cell therapy or bispecific therapy, and that their outcomes will be uh, not as good. But uh, the data isn't there yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you would kind of guess guess that maybe. Um, yeah. But, uh, it'll That's be interesting me. I'm to a see in the future. You're a prover. <laughs> you do the trials and you make it happen. So speaking of that, are there any clinical trials? You mentioned earlier in the show that you're working on your own mobilization solution as well. Are there any other yeah. clinical trials you're working on that you'd like to highlight for a stem cell transplant or immunotherapy space in myeloma? Oh, um, well, we um, in myeloma, yeah. So I, I tell you a couple of things we're working on. Just, you know, uh, this is, so we've, we've been interested in, you know, obviously people have uh, identified BCMA as a very good target myeloma. Uh, and, in fact, the two approved products, Abecma and uh, Carvecti, mm -hmm. target BCMA. And, and, of course, you know that there are uh, bispecifics that target BCMA. And the reason it's such right. a good target is that, um, is that it is, really differentially and universally expressed in myeloma versus non-myeloma cells, versus non-plasma cells, let me put it that way. Uh, that's the first reason. The second reason is, you know, when you uh, get a mouse and you knock out BCMA, you actually have a big problem uh, in that the mice don't develop any B cells, and so they don't uh, survive as long. And so that means that the gene is less likely to be lost it can be shed from the surface of myeloma cells, but it's less likely at the genetic level to be lost because it's an important gene for B cell development. So it's a good target, and it's really the best um, and most differentially expressed gene in myeloma. Um, and mm -hmm. so we were interested in identifying second-generation and third-generation targets. And so, um, you know, we, what we did is we took the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation data set uh, and our own data sets here and used the largest data sets in the world and looked at the expression of um, differentially expressed genes in myeloma malignant plasma cells versus all the other tissues. And we just published this dictionary of all the targets in myeloma in cancer research, I don't know, maybe six months ago. Um, and wow. so that is, a, that is a dictionary of all the targets that are differentially expressed in myeloma. And we did it both at the genetic level, uh, at the uh, RNA level, and also at the protein level. 
And we, so this is, I think, the only so, such really uh, uh, dictionary or compendium of all of these potential targets. And there were two other targets that really, um, there's one other target that we identified that's being pursued by, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, industry, and that's GPRC59D, uh, rather, mm-hmm. um, and that is um, a target that's expressed in the GI tract and in the skin, and um, that is in clinical trials right now with a bispecific agent. And uh, we also came up with two other targets um, that we think are really very universally overexpressed in myeloma, and that's CS1, uh, Mm -hmm. also called SLAM-F7. And there are two or two or three groups in the world, including our own, that are working on that. There's a big study in Europe um, uh, that um, uh, is being um, pursued with um, uh, with a, what's called a mini gene approach, a transposon approach with a CAR T to CS1. And there's uh, two small studies done in the United being done in the United States, and we have our own CS1 that we've cloned uh, the antibody and we've made an SCFV. And so we have a, an IND that's pending at the FDA and we hope to, and we have GMP grade vector and we're gonna test uh, PS1 uh, as a target in myeloma because everybody with myeloma that gets BCMA cars seems to all recur. Um, and mm-hmm. so um, the vast majority of patients, they'll have nice responses, but they eventually recurrence. The recurrence median and recurrence times can range between eight months and 15 months, but that it's not a permanent uh, treatment. So we'd like to get um, we'd like to get alternative cars that would target another antigen. So we have we're ready to go with a CS1 car, and then uh, there's there's one other uh, target that that we really liked in our study, and we've, uh, we've made also unique SCFEs to this target called uh, FCRL5. And there is uh, one study using a bispecific targeting this reagent called sofostamab. And so mm-hmm. this would be the first, ours would be the first CAR T-cell study targeting uh, FCRL5, and we're making GMP-grade virus now. So um, those are two. Those would be backups for those people who fail BCMA-targeted therapies, either bispecifics or CAR Ts. And I think that because people live so long, they deserve alternative treatments when they fail BCMA therapy. So that that's a couple of other things. Yeah, that's work. fantastic. That's just wonderful. And we would love to share your dictionary of targets. So later, I will reach out and see if you can email me a link to that because we have a news feed and that will. We'll share that on. Um, and wonderful. We we actually, as a foundation, funded, um, it, was, it was the University of Würzburg, right, the work that you were talking about in CS1 and in CAR-T, yeah, maybe in Germany? That's, that's exactly yeah, right. we funded Here's that back in 2015. Work. Exactly. Uh, Mike Hudecek. So, yeah. Yep, Mike, Michael Hudecek. We, um, we funded him. So yeah. that's it's good to know that we did a good job there. Yeah. To, to fund some of that work. So I, I am thrilled, and it will be fabulous to see what you can do with it. I think in the United States you can move a little faster than you can in Europe, and that will be fantastic. So we will follow you closely yeah. on that. Um, but, yes, okay, so we're a little over, but I want to allow just time for one question. So if you have a question for um, Dr. DiPercio, uh please call Three four seven six three seven two six three one and plus one on your keypad, and we'll just take one because I know we're over. Okay, caller that ends in eight two three three. Go ahead with your question. Hi, I was wondering how long after transplant should I wait to have immunotherapy, and does it take a while to recover so that immunotherapy can be effective? Uh, that's a good question. No studies have uh, have been done uh, that specifically look at that. Uh, that's um, unfortunately, I'm sure that's uh, not, not what you wanted to hear. But but we have recommendations, even though no studies have been done. And uh, we know uh, a little bit about um, uh, uh, lymphocyte recovery after transplant, and that after myeloma autologous stem cell transplants, the lymphocyte recovery is usually pretty adequate after three months, so 90 days. 
So the recommendation is somewhere between 90 days and 100 days after transplant, you can be revaccinated. Okay. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Um, Dr. DiPersio, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you're so knowledgeable, and it's been a wonderful show. Thank you for sharing your transplant and immunotherapy experience with us as myeloma patients. We're just so grateful. Thanks for the invitation. I really enjoyed it, and I wish you all the very best. Okay, thank you so much. We look forward to seeing what you do in the future. It's amazing. And thank you for listening to the Health Tree Podcast for Multiple Myeloma. Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in myeloma research and what it means for you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.